Hello, everyone, and welcome to OT with DA and EH. There you go. We are in chapter 49 of our textbook, Patriarchs and Prophets. And uh, the chapter is titled The Last Words of Joshua. So, hello, everybody that is tuning in on YouTube. Hello to everyone on Instagram Live. We know that it's not the ideal time, uh, maybe today, for many of you. But hopefully for others, it's a better time, and uh, we're working around schedules and airline flights and other things. By the way, uh, just a, a quick update. Originally, Ty Gibson was supposed to be with me today and tomorrow and the next day, but Elise was very generous and gracious and willing to stay uh, for an extra day. So thank you for that, Elise. It's been awesome to have you. But Ty uh, is presently stuck in Australia. And unfortunately, he won't be able to be here tomorrow or the next day. He's there for at least the next 10 days. And so what I was able to do was reach out to somebody, a good friend of mine and a local pastor who uh, was a big part really at the close of DA with DA. Um, and so if, if you know who I'm talking about, he'll be live with me tomorrow at seven o'clock. And uh, if you don't know, you'll get to see tomorrow. But uh, I'm really excited that he's coming. And uh, I don't know if the family's coming or not, but but definitely he will be here. So that's going to be good. That'll be chapter 50. Today we're in chapter 49. So Elise, I'm so glad you're here. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. And today, Violetta, she's actually helping um, some friends of ours watching their children. So Elise and I, we walked here, didn't yep. we? It's about a mile and a half. Uphill. And uphill. It's uphill both ways, Both actually. ways. Snow. There is snow. Oh, there actually was snow, but it wasn't yeah. like windy particularly. That's true. But we had a lovely walk, and Elise, um, she didn't wear the endorcasizing boots with the plastic bags. I did this morning. Oh, you did again this yeah, morning? Yeah, I went for a little run. Little run with the endorcasizing. But I wore Jable's boots this afternoon. Yeah, this afternoon yes. she wore my youngest son's boots. So here we are. We are really, uh, today's chapter is short but good. Like yep. punchy, powerful. And uh, I'll just let you know right out of the gate, um, many of you that are tracking with OT with DA, you know that I keep track of um, what I call my all-time statements, like the statements that are just the pinnacle of the pinnacle, the top of the top. And in today's chapter, even though there have only been about, well, I can count them, actually. I can tell you exactly how many of, of the all-time statements. Now, again, this is from just me personally. Um, I'll tell you how many were in the chapter so far or excuse me, the book so far. So I had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then in today's chapter, short though it be, I had two all-time statements. Get out of town. Get out of town. So this, this chapter is disproportionately rep represented in really powerful paragraphs, and I can't wait to share both of those. What do you got? I want to give a shout out to the people that participated in the OT with the Egg Gratitude Challenge. Yes. We have... Christy Michelle Music, who yeah. posted beautiful flowers yeah. and a little gratitude write-up. Um, let's see who's that. Marco Luca. Yeah. Picture of his dog. Elise Hopkins. Oh, what a great name. Love that name. We have Paul's Point Princess. She's grateful that she found her pencil. It was in her hair and she forgot. Yeah. Good one. Good one. Um, That's Megan. Megan. A really nice write-up by Megan. Um, Paul's Point 
Princess Maria King. Who's this? Eva. This is Eva. Eva, the bingo queen. And you notice she had the Permuda Triangle there. Ah, so that's her, her cats. How the, clever. The Permuda. Clever. She's the one that did the uh, bingo thing. We have M, some, M something. M something. And uh, Robin. And Kelly. Kelly. Yep. So thank you, everyone, that did that. I hope I didn't miss anyone. I think oh. you got most of them. I don't even know. Swashinger. Swashinger. Space <laughs> SDA. Oh, are they in outer space Oh, I haven't seen that one right yet. Now? I got to go. You have lovely I thought, I thought I'd gone down all of lovely them. Lovely family. Allison, Amory. So, yeah, if you want. Oh, Dramnik. Well, I thought I'd gotten all of them. All right, a few of them have snuck through yeah, since so I last checked you it. You can still post what you're grateful for. Use the hashtag and meet each other. Um, that is to say the cool. OT with DA hashtag. Right, not just any hashtag. It won't work. <laughs> Oh, I have one more thing. Go. Okay, so we talked uh, on Sabbath when we did the supplemental session, we talked a little bit about uh, this idea that doctrine doesn't really matter mm -hmm. and why we think doctrine matters. And I wanted to share one one thought. Um, the word doctrine actually comes from the Latin word, um, I don't know how you pronounce it. It's D-O-C-E-R-E. -E. What would that be? Docer? Docer. Yeah. Docer. Yeah. It's the same word that the word doctor comes from. And gotcha. it means to teach. But isn't that fascinating? Because a doctor is someone that heals, mm -hmm. right? Because when we're teaching the right things and part of the role of a, a doctor oh, is beautiful. to heal. So when we think of doctrines, biblical doctrines. We should think of them as healing. We should think of them as healing. Good for you, girl. And well, you, good for the doctrine. Yeah, and good for you for saying it. Um, so welcome, everybody. We are super glad that you are here. We are in chapter 49, the last words of Joshua. And here again, it kind of feels like this is a transitional chapter, a pivotal chapter. We had sort of big macro picture. Part one was Genesis. Part two was sort of Moses and Exodus. Part three in sort of the big picture is Joshua and the conquest of Canaan. And that chapter is coming now to its own close. Mm -hmm. And so th this chapter, I, I was kind of sad as I was reading this chapter. Like it, it feels like we've been traveling with Joshua We've we've seen the transition, mm. the passing of the mantle from Moses to him, and then now in just you know four or five short chapters, I didn't count exactly how many it is, but now we're at the last words of Joshua, and these are probably, I think you could make a case that Joshua twenty four fifteen because today is based on Joshua chapters twenty three and twenty four, that Joshua twenty four fifteen as for me and my house mm -hmm. right is probably may certainly one of the best known passages in the Old Testament and maybe yeah. the best known. With the other possible exception being um, like, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, mm -hmm. right? Like this is one of the best known, uh, most loved. For I know the plans I have for you. Yep, that's, that's another one. one. Yeah. But I just, I mean, you go to people's homes and you see Joshua 24, 15 up on the wall. Yeah. I see that a lot. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And one of the great things that we're going to get in today's chapter is the historical context in which Joshua is saying that. And then the follow-up, which I've never seen hanging on anybody's wall. You know, the follow-up there where then Joshua says, hey, you have to decide if you're going to serve Yahweh or the gods on the other side of the river, um, the Canaanites. And then uh, they said, no, we're going to serve Yahweh. And then God says, you can't. Or God says, Joshua says, you can't. Mm. You can't. You can't be double-minded. And so you never, you never quite see that hanging up in the home. We will serve the Lord. You can't. No. Nope. You don't see that. But we're going to talk about that today. Welcome, everybody. We're going to get into this. So we'll start with prayer. 
and then we'll be off to the races. Okay. You ready? Ready. Father in heaven, we love you and thank you. Thank you for a great, vigorous walk that we had over here today, Lord. Beautiful day, snow still on the ground. And Lord, thank you for this chapter. What a great chapter. So insightful. And as I said there in the intro, it's like we're coming to the end of a another era, right? Another large section in this book. And uh, Lord, help us to try, insofar as it's possible, to enter into the emotional historical experience that Israel and Joshua himself would have been having. So we love you, Father, and we just pray that your spirit that inspired these words would now become the spirit that instructs. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so chapter 49, the last words of Joshua, based on Joshua 23 and 24. Let me just get there in my Bible. Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. And... Um, I really, really liked this chapter. It was good. It's short, but really punchy, as I've already mentioned, two all-time statements here. Two, Elise. Do you have any guesses to which ones they are? Um, I underlined too many things. It's gonna yeah, be I was going to say, like your whole chapter is underlined. Um, okay, well, let's start with uh, the first paragraph. And if you don't mind, Elise, could you just read that for us to get us started? Sure. The wars and conquests ended, Joshua had withdrawn to the peaceful retirement of his home at Timnath Sarah. Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers. Okay, so the first thing that I want to sort of highlight here, and this actually comes up at least one other time in this chapter, is the idea of rest. Now, the word rest is not used in that opening paragraph, but the, the idea of rest is certainly communicated with phrases like um, the conquest was ended, the word withdrawn, and then finally, the, the, you know, to, he, he, he withdraws to the peaceful retirement of his home in Timnath Sarah. So I don't know if you're aware of this, or you would probably be at least, but just this brought to my mind Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 6 to 11, and I just want to read this. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 6 to 11. It says, um, Since therefore it remains that some must enter the rest, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. And what's happening in Hebrews is this really, really cool thing where the author of Hebrews is tying together the rest that Israel was supposed to have, the land resting from warfare, rest from their enemies, with the Sabbath rest, and then the promise of the ultimate rest that we experience in Christ by faith. Mm. And so I just really liked the way this chapter opened where Joshua is just getting a little... A little bit of rest. I mean, we know he was warring for years. The land, the, the 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 army has been disbanded, and even though every tribe has not been, uh, every Canaanite tribe has not been fully dispossessed from the land, you just get the sense that that there's this little reprieve, that Joshua gets a taste of what God had intended for Israel in the Promised Land, which was a land flowing with milk and honey, a time of rest, mm -hmm. a time of peaceful mm -hmm. ret retirement, as she calls it, and. It just, it really brought warmth to my heart to think that the longing desire of God's heart for his people is for them to be in a restful, 
peaceful, happy state. Mm. That's what God wants for us. And it's, it's really the punchline of, of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Mm -hmm. So that really jumped out to me, and I, I like that. I like the picture in my mind of Joshua, this man of war, this man who would have been, you know, in many ways trying to fulfill the impossible task of being Moses' mm -hmm. successor, just gets this little reprieve. And even though the work wasn't done, right, mm -hmm. there were still tribes in the land, and Joshua exhorts them and says, look, don't relax. Don't settle in. Don't you rest. I'm getting old and I'm about ready to die, but this is not a time for restfulness. It's a time for vigilance and take the land. God will be with you. Mm -hmm. What do you got? Anything in, uh, how about on the, that whole first page? Anything there? Yeah. So I loved, um, let's see, about three-fourths of the way down. Yeah. Um, it said that Joshua, well, it said that the people were kind of growing lazy yep. and creeping into the same evils that had previously brought judgments upon right. Israel. So, of course, he's really concerned. Yep. And I love it says he was filled with anxiety for the future of his people. Yeah. There's the pathos there. Um, he really, really cared about them. Let me read you something interesting about that. Look at this. If you go back to the chapter titled The Law Repeated, which, this, which is the chapter immediately before the death of Moses, mm -hmm. and Moses is coming to the end of his life, he's asked God, can I please, please, please go into the promised land? And God says, no, and don't ask me this again. Listen to this. This is on page 564. Without a murmur, Moses submitted to the decree of God, and now his great anxiety was for Israel. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly the same. Right, and it says, it was with more than a father's interest mm. that he addressed them as they gathered once more around their aged chief. Um, yeah, I just thought that was beautiful. beautiful. Like, um, just this idea of the last words of, of the, the father, the grandfather, the grandmother, um, I got to be with my grandpa. I mean, not that these were his, um, not that he died right after this, but, but like this is basically the last message he wants to communicate. Mm. I got to be with my grandpa in the hospital the whole week before he died. And it was so special. Like he said a special prayer of blessing over me. Oh, and those beautiful. moments are so precious and so sacred. And, is this Russell? Yeah, Russell oh. Youngberg. Um, he, he even put his, his, hand on my head and did a little prayer for me, oh, which was, yeah. Man. So I think of that's that, beautiful. I was thinking of that when I read this chapter. I want to lay my hands on the head of my grandchildren, hopefully a granddaughter, grandson, and pray mm. with them. I yeah. want that to be some of the very last things that I do. Yeah. Right. This does. And, and this chapter actually ends, um, or actually Joshua, the whole of Joshua, um, the book of Joshua ends in this same kind of way. Like if you listen, uh, to the very the last few verses of 24, it says, Israel served, I'm in verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. The bones of Joseph, which Israel, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground, which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver. Uh, which had become an inheritance for the children of Israel. And then the very last verse, and Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. They buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. So you really do have this sense of, you know, a generational passing. Yeah. And that's what you yeah. had with your with your grandfather. And, and this is such a beautiful thing to, to have that generational connection. I mean, they're still talking about the bones of Joseph here. Mm-hmm. 
right? And, and we need to have that strong sense, hopefully, by the grace of God, you're in a family where you not only know your parents, you know your grandparents, and then if you're really blessed, you might have even got to know your great-grandparents. Mm. So I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And, and I, I, it jumped out to me, too, this, you know, he had anxiety, not primarily for his own death. He is safe in the hands of Yahweh, right? Mm-hmm. He's trusting God, but his worry, as I'm, I'm sure that Russell's worry, maybe worry is the wrong word, but his anxiety, his mm-hmm. concern is for you, mm-hmm. right? He's lived his life. He's done what, what he's going to do. And then now he's thinking about his children and his children's children, perhaps even his children's children's children, mm. right? Now, really nice. Um, she then goes on to talk about the admonition that Joshua is giving to Israel, saying, don't settle down at ease. The next paragraph says, the people in general were slow to complete the work of driving out the heathen. And it occurred to me that that it's easy to start a thing and it's harder to finish. I think we've all had those moments where there's a lot of enthusiasm and energy and excitement at the beginning of a project, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. But finishing is better than starting, right? Like to start a thing is easy. To finish a thing it requires some, you know, real discipline and energy. And Israel had kind of gotten in and now they're resting on their laurels. They're settled on their lees. Joshua senses this. They've disbanded the army. And it says here, the tribes have been dispersed to their possessions. The army had been disbanded. And it was looked upon as a difficult and doubtful undertaking to renew the war. It was just like, oh, really? Mm. You know, get everybody back together again and start, you know, swords. And it was just like, oh, isn't it just okay the way it is? Like, we can kind of peacefully coexist here with these people. Not good. Mm-hmm. Not good at all. We shouldn't be making peace with the influences. And I suppose the application would be here for us. The influences that God is trying to drive out of our lives, we shouldn't be content. Well, they're mostly driven out, right? Like, we got most of it out. I mean, there's just a 10 or 15% residual. I'm I'm mostly good. I'm, it's mostly done. And God's like, no, you need to get all that stuff out. Mm. Drive that out because it's going to come back and haunt you. So that really jumped out to me. Mm-hmm. All right. You got anything on the next page, page 637? Yeah. So I know you guys have addressed this before, but um, because we've had several chapters here that include these conquests, mm. um, I think it's important to just to keep remembering there's a big distinction between what God was calling the children of Israel to do here and you know religious conflict in our day yeah. right yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. and and how would you articulate that distinction because sometimes people have justified religious conflict you know after the time of, of Jesus by turning to these types of stories in the old testament you're asking me yeah so like how do we how do we because you know i'm a pacifist and the seventh day adventist tradition has a strong pacifism perspective but sometimes we look at these passages and we're like, well, if something is evil, like, isn't it okay to wipe it out? And, you know, throughout Christian history, there's been so much blood, so much mm. war in the name of Jesus, in the name of trying to stand up for what's right. Um, so how do we keep reminding ourselves of that when we read these kinds of stories? Yeah, so we I get in, we get into this with uh, Dr. Peckham in mm-hmm. the supplemental session, but the, the sort of short version is, is that you cannot take you know, a very specific and explicit command from God about a specific circumstance, a specific situation under God's direct leadership, and then just start, you know, willy-nilly applying that to any conflict, you know, for your political ends or for your purposes that you just want to do X or Y or Z and start trying to find biblical justification. There's just no grounds to do that because 
we know that this situation is a specific situation under God's guidance, mm -hmm. under his supervision, and it was in fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise to receive this parcel of land. And we've already seen in this very story that they were not to harass and to molest and menace other tribes outside of this specific land, mm -hmm. right? Like he says to the Moabites, leave them alone. And he says, uh, uh, you know, to the descendants of, of Lot and of, and of Esau, leave the Edomites, leave them alone. This is not your land, and I've given Mount Seir to Edom, and I've done... So even this was regional, it was specific, it could not just be extrapolated to a carte blanche endorsement to just go out and slay utterly, you know, those people that uh, you are, you know, unhappy with for some reason. So there's just no sense in which we can just pluck this up and start applying it to, like, for example, American foreign policy or any country's foreign policy. Right. And what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a great answer. I mean, I think like um, I'm really inspired by um, people that are making efforts towards religious liberty because mm. we know that we are supposed to be a people of nonviolence and to respect other people's beliefs while still um, holding true to what we believe scripture yeah. says. So I think it's important that we just make that distinction. And of course, you know, if anyone didn't listen to John Peckham's um, to you guys' supplemental session and and still has these questions about violence in the Old Testament, that's a really good thing to, no, to watch. Remember when Jesus is before Pilate, Pilate says, are you a king? And they have this whole conversation about the nature of king, the nature of being a king, the nature of kingdom, the nature of empire. And Jesus expressly says, my, my kingdom is not of this world mm -hmm. or else my servants would be fighting. Right? Jesus was fighting on a whole nother level, on an entirely different plane. And it's not to say that there are not, within the context of a fallen world, where there are nations that uh, are treating people unjustly or unfairly, that, that nations in their own best interest aren't going to rise up on occasion. We know this. There's going to be wars mm -hmm. and rumors of wars. And the Christian response in these circumstances should be to earnestly pray for a minimization of casualties and if there is involvement, and, and, you know, I come from a military family. My father was in the mm. U.S. Uh, uh, Air Force for 36 years. But if I was ever in a situation where I was going to go into war, I would go in as a conscientious objector, mm -hmm. right? I'm happy to go in to bring healing, to bring, uh, you know, medical like uh, um, Desmond Doss. But as far as shooting across the battlefield at another person, that's a tricky one because you do not know you know, that particular person or persons that you might be personally responsible for killing, you don't know anything about them, mm -hmm. right? And to color them with the same brush of their political leaders is a really unsafe thing to do. And, and you just take, for example, the Ukrainian-Russian conflict right now. Like, a lot of these Russian soldiers, all oh, the Russians are the bad guys. They're, well, no, the Russians are not the bad guys. The Russians right now have a leader that appears to be something like a thuggish dictator, but you can't color every Russian and not even every Russian soldier with the same brush that you would color Vladimir Putin with. I mean, Vladimir Putin's not on the front lines of battle. I mean, this is my personal opinion. If you are this passionate about a war, then get your bottom, get your backside on the front lines of those war and go show us how mm -hmm. passionate you are. It's, a, it's an, for me, an entirely unethical and indefensible position to be willing for somebody else to go to war and die for something that you would not go to war and die for. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's important to remember too that pacifism doesn't have to be uh, passivism, like there are so many things Christians can do to get involved in humanitarian Amen. efforts to Amen. donate, like ADRA and many other humanitarian um, organizations are doing such good work. And so we don't just have to, 
you know, back sit entirely. back and, yeah. and be indifferent towards human suffering, but we can engage in ways um, that that God is calling us to engage in um, without becoming violent. Active in, yeah, that's a great point. I, I love your line there, that passivism doesn't have to be passive, right? We It can be, Jesus was hardly passive. He was active, but he was active in healing and administering and in bringing hope. And as the Christian church, this is a world filled with despair, with uh, doubts, with pain, cruelty, injustice, and we can speak into those situations, and we can pray, and and we sometimes say pray with almost a like a resignation that like, well, I guess we can pray. No, prayer is powerful. Yeah. We just read a couple chapters ago that men and women of prayer are men and women of power, and so when we say pray, we are literally interceding into specific individual situations that God can work in ways, and, and John Peckman's next book is actually on intercessory mm, prayer. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be on, you know, kind of the thing that you and I have both heard Ty Gibson say before, that prayer is an act of war. Mm-hmm. I mean, hear that, friends. Prayer is an act of war because it is part of God's plan to grant us in answer to the prayer of faith that which he could not bestow, did we not thus ask. Mm-hmm. When we pray, God can do things in ways that are not otherwise available to him in the absence of us freely inviting him into these situations. And so, Prayer is not just like poo-poo, dismiss, oh, yeah, yeah, you just pray about it. No, we can pray, yeah. we can intercede, and this is not nothing. This is something. Love Same it. page? Yep. Um, okay, so we're still on page uh, 637, and that paragraph that um, begins, Joshua appealed to the people. Joshua appealed to the people themselves as witnesses that so far as they had complied with the conditions, God had faithfully fulfilled his promises to them. And you might remember yesterday I read that, um, the last three verses of Joshua 21. Let's just remind ourselves of that. So Yahweh gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and they dwelt in it. Yahweh gave them rest all around. There's that word. According to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and not a man of their enemies stood against them. Yahweh delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which Yahweh had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Mm. But all of God's faithfulness is is predicated on our voluntary, enthusiastic compliance with the conditions. Mm -hmm. And in this case, the conditions are the covenant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. And you you see this in the rest of that paragraph with the this like as so, as so, right? So as the Lord had fulfilled his promises, so he would fulfill his threatenings. Uh, Sentence later, um, as... All the good things that have come upon you, which the Lord your God has promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you. So, as so, which is kind of like an if-then, to the degree that we continue to comply with the very reasonable conditions that God has enjoined upon us as free agents who take seriously creaturely freedom, then God will continue to do what God is doing. Mm -hmm. He's not going to be capricious or arbitrary and suddenly change his mind. No, he's consistent. He's reliable. And the invitation is for us to believe that God will continue to behave in the way that he has up to this point as long as we comply with the covenantal conditions. Mm-hmm. So that jumped out to me. Yep. You got anything there? Yeah. Um, I just love he's appealing to their memory, like mm-hmm. which all of mm-hmm. us need to do, appeal to our memory. How has God taken care of me in the past? Yeah. You know, paying attention to God's work through history. That's why we read scripture. That's why we read these books so Amen. that our minds can, you know, have this fresh awareness of, how good and how powerful God is. Mm. And we we all have this tendency to drift away in our thinking like they're doing here. And so Josh was coming and reminding them. And then I thought it was interesting. She points out 
Um, he declared to them that as the Lord had fulfilled his promises, so he would fulfill his threatenings. And this is like a reference back to the blessings and the, and curses. the curses. Yeah, curses. Um, and then down here, yeah, you and this, I both this like, marked up this. This is one yeah. of the great. This is one of the great paragraphs yeah. in the whole of Patriarchs and Prophets. The theology here, the language here, the precision with which she writes in this paragraph is incredible. And if you don't mind, Elise, if you'd read through it, let's just go through this yeah. with a fine-tooth comb. Okay, great. One sentence at a time, even. Satan deceives many with the plausible theory that God's love for his people is so great that he will excuse sin in them. He represents that while the threatenings of God's word are to serve a certain purpose in his moral government, they're never to be literally fulfilled. Okay, let me just stop you right there. This is a really great point she makes about the plausibility of this theory. Mm -hmm. so I'm going to put you on the spot here, Elise. Why is that theory plausible? But plausible meaning that it's it seems reasonable. It's almost believable. Why is it plausible that God's love is so great that he would excuse sin in his people? She doesn't say with the ridiculous theory, with the absurd theory, with yeah. the incomprehensible theory. She says, no, the plausible theory. Why is it plausible? Because God is so merciful. And because we struggle with sin, correct, it can be easy to start thinking that, eh, like, he's going to sort it all out. Right. And it's possible because God is so awesome. Yeah. Right? Like, if we're trying to say, God is amazing, God is awesome, God is merciful, God is forgiving, it's like anything almost that you're going to say after that's going to be plausible because all of those things are true. Right. But then she's going to provide this ever so important and careful pushback to say, yeah, yeah, but the problem is that these words that God has spoken don't just serve a moral purpose like with parents to say, if you do this, then I'll, you know, we see this all the time, like at grocery stores or in, you know, situations where you encounter parents. They make these threats that the parent knows is a threat, the mm -hmm. child knows is a threat, mm -hmm. and then it only further emboldens the child to behave in really irresponsible ways. Mm -hmm. And she's saying, that's not what's happening with God's words. These are not just to sort of in encourage you to obedience or faithfulness. These are not serving a moral or a strategic purpose. They're true. Yeah. Okay, keep going. Um, but in all his dealings with his creatures, God has maintained the principles of righteousness by revealing sin in its true character, by demonstrating that its sure result is misery and death. Okay, let's stop there. First of all, notice that, that the use of the word revealing and demonstrating mm -hmm. are, serve the same function. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, see, by revealing its true sin and its true character, and then by demonstrating that its result is misery and death. What God is trying to do in the great controversy is help us to understand what sin is, mm -hmm. and then by extension, of course, what righteousness is. Mm -hmm. He's trying to expose it. This has got that very Matthew 13, let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of the harvest, it'll become really obvious there will be a disclosure a demonstration, a revealing of what evil is, yeah. how how bad sin is. And I just think it's super important here that she's highlighting that that's really what God is driving at. Yeah. And, you know, it's pretty common in our culture to hear people say things like, I just can't imagine a God who would fill in the blank and then go on to say something that God has, in fact, said that he would do. <laughs> Um, so your imagination is broken, basically. Right. And when when that's occurring, it's because we've lost hold of what sin is. Correct. We, we've lost the doctrine of sin, of how awful it is, of how damaging it is. I mean, 
we somehow are able to compartmentalize sin and evil in our thinking, but the reality is that the same sin that's leading to civilians being, you know, killed brutally, we're seeing pictures coming out just today, Mm. that same power is the same power that's inside of us working to destroy us. And God can't protect the safety and the sustainability of the universe in the future if he's not dealing with the sin in us right now. Well said. So well said. And that sin, she says, it results in, it sure results, our misery and death. Right, this goes right back to the Garden of Eden, where God says, don't eat of that tree, because in the day you eat of that tree, you will die. The results will be death. The results will be shame and guilt and disconnection and misery. And so this is such a great point she's making. She's saying, look, a lot of people say, God is so good. God is so kind. God is so forgiving. All that kind of mean stuff that it sounds like he's saying in the Old Testament, that judgmental stuff, it's fine. No, it's not going to, it's all going to be okay. Well, it is all going to be okay but not in the sense that God's just going to sweep sin under the rug. Sin is so poisonous. Sin is so toxic to human beings and to our happiness and to our holiness. God takes it seriously, and we should too. Yeah, and I love, like, good parents believe in who their children can become. Amen. Right? That's why you take your kids to school. That's why you get them to practice their instrument or whatever it is that they they want to flourish in. Parents... uh in a healthy way, push their children. Yeah. And parents who don't do that aren't doing their their children a service. Correct. Um, because their children can grow up without having the coping skills they need for life, without having the talents and, you know, having cultivated and developed their, mm. their minds and their skill sets in order to live lives of flourishing. And sin isn't just about particular actions, what we're doing and what we're not doing. It's about the kind of people we're becoming. Beautiful. And when God is trying to address um, our characters, trying to guide us in the right way, it's because he believes that we can become something precious. He believes we can reflect Christ. And he really believes he has a very high view of how we can grow and become. And as compassionate or, you know, these arguments, like, I just can't believe in a God who would expect this or that from a person. It's like, can't you believe in a God that wants his children to have the most flourishing and to Mm. become the most uh, healing agents possible? Because he wants to turn us into people that are able to um, bless and help others. And sin is what prevents us from being able to do that. I'm so glad, Elise, that you've pointed out this this idea, and you've said it twice, that people will say, because I myself have heard it many times, I can't believe in a God or I can't worship a God who, and very often, not always, but very often when somebody says that, the thing that they say next does not have any sort of theological robustness to it. They're just sort of speaking out of their emotional, there's there's not a biblical uh, conversancy or, or significance to what they're saying. They're just like, it's like C.S. Lewis said, you know, people don't want a, a heavenly father for the most part. They want a heavenly, heavenly grandfather, mm. right? Like they just want, it's all going to be okay. And here's some more chocolates. And, you know, because grandkid grandparents are known to, you know, sort of spoil their grandchildren, parents less so. Sure. Right. And so the point here that when people say, well, I couldn't worship a God who, yeah, just before you say that, maybe make sure that your mind is saturated with what this, the text of scripture actually says. Because like you, Elise, I've heard people say, whatever that fill in the blank is, and I'm thinking, well, the Bible expressly says that God does that. Mm-hmm. God does that. In fact, look at the next thing that Ellen White says. She says, the unconditional pardon of sin has never been and never will be 
Mashiach. The unconditional pardon of sin. God cannot forgive sin without conditions, without some system by which, some, some plan by which sin is addressed and dealt with for the heinous, happiness-destroying thing that it is. You can't just sweep it under the rug and say, oh, it's no big deal. Like you said the other day, when somebody comes to you and says, hey, I'm sorry, I, and then you say, that's okay. That's really not the thing to say because the thing they did was not okay. That's why they're apologizing. Mm -hmm. And we're not talking here about, you know, I'm sorry I got dirt on your brand new shoes. We're talking about things of significance here, and sin is significant. So God can't pretend. It's actually a, a fiction for God to pretend that sin is anything less than thoroughly destructive, a thoroughly yeah. destructive force in the universe. Yeah, and... And that what you're saying is different than saying that um, God doesn't give unmerited favor or that we work for his favor, right. right? So God's forgiveness is unconditional in that sense. And yet she's saying... No, but it's not unconditional. It's con God is the one who has achieved the conditions, mm -hmm. but the conditions mm -hmm. are there. Yeah. Right? But like if... I mean, what happened the first time sin arose in heaven? Well, this world of suffering happened and Correct. right now that's playing out in the Russian Ukrainian conflict. Right. What's going to happen if if sin exists in heaven after again. the second coming, exactly. the same thing is going to happen again. Correct. Yeah, the unconditional pardon of sin never has been and never will be. Such pardon would show the abandonment of the principles of righteousness or justice or fairness. Mm -hmm. These are all synonyms for righteousness, which are the very foundation of the government of God. Exactly. Right? Like, sin is an actual thing. Like, there's this sort of concrete, terrible, destructive force that comes into the world when we rebel against God and his good will for us. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a you know, uh, pleasing fiction, but ultimately a destructive fiction to just imagine that God can just pretend that sin isn't sin. Mm -hmm. Okay, why don't you finish up? I like what Sylvia said. She said, God's love is unconditional. God's forgiveness is conditional. Correct. Yeah, I think so. Very good. Okay, where are we? Uh, it, would it, fill, would fill. it would fill the unfallen universe with consternation. God has faithfully pointed out the results of sin, and if these warnings were not true, how could we be sure that his promises would be fulfilled? Exactly. That so-called benevolence, I circled that, so-called benevolence, mm -hmm. which would set aside justice, is not benevolence, but weakness. That last sentence is incredible. Unpack that for us. Yeah, we just need to be really careful that we're letting God define, you know, God is the creator, so he obviously knows more than we mm -hmm, do. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure that he's the one that we're letting define love. What God calls loving, what God calls benevolent, yeah. benevolent is love because, you know, the devil is the author of lies and he wants to change our very de definition of love in a way that makes God uh, look bad and confuses us and damages us. Yeah, and if you look at the, the very next sentence in the next paragraph, God is the life giver. Who is uniquely qualified to understand and ascertain the sinfulness of sin, right? How evil is evil? Mm -hmm. Well, the one who's created life and who sees its cancerous, malignant effects on human beings, on families, yeah. on nations, so, so we're not in a position, okay, this is the simple way to say it. We're not in a position to evaluate how evil evil is or how sinful sinful is. Now, sometimes we are. Mm -hmm. If something terrible happens to a family member or to a friend or we see a situation like what's happening in the Russian-Ukrainian conflict or we've, we see glimpses of evil, but even then, we only see a fraction of how evil evil is yeah. or how sin, sinful sin is. God, okay, it's a little bit like this. 
So you sit down at the doctor's uh, office and you've had a test and the doctor says, hey, we've got some really bad news here. You have, and he, he lists some long bunch of syllables that you don't really understand. And you're like, no, nah, doc, it'll be fine. And he's told you that you have basically a terminal cancer. Yeah. So, so you're in less of a position to understand how serious your case is than the doctor is. Because the doctor knows he's seen cases like this before. He's seen what this disease does. He knows that it is metastasized through your whole body. You might be very Pollyanna, very optimistic about it. And the doctor would say, no, no, I don't think you understand. Yeah. Because he, by his wisdom, by his research, or she, by her wisdom and research and her familiarity with the disease, she knows the mess you're in, even if you don't. Mm -hmm. by, by analogy, but to a much greater degree, if we're sort of casual and like, oh, no, sin, God's like, no, no, you don't, you don't understand. Yeah. This is not something you can make peace with. And back to the analogy about, you know, what Joshua was saying is don't settle down. Don't mm -hmm. be content with, oh, there's a few Canaanites here and, you know, but it's okay. No, sin in our lives, we don't want to get it 90% out, 93% out. And then we start to rest and we think everything's going to be okay because it will have a leavening and a metastasizing effect. And God is saying, no, it's going to kill you. Two times in that paragraph, she says the results of sin, the results of sin. This isn't something that God comes in arbitrarily or, or contrivedly and does to you. Mm -hmm. Sin does this to us. And yeah. God is saying, don't make peace with it. Just what you just said reminds me of a quote by Norman Cousins. Uh, Norman Cousins, he was a reporter. Um, I, I don't think he's alive anymore. Um, but he was diagnosed with a life-threatening illness, a very serious autoimmune disorder, rare disorder. And he worked with his doctor to come up with like this super unique treatment plan um, that included like laughter therapy and lots of vitamin C. And anyway, he basically reversed his illness. Um, but in his book, he said, don't deny the diagnosis, defy the verdict. Ooh. Because sometimes people want to deny the diagnosis. I, I don't want to pay attention to this. I don't want. I just, that is so good. Right? No, you can accept the diagnosis, but still defy the verdict. And that's wow. what the gospel gives us the opportunity to do. But we're not doing ourselves any favors to, when, deny, to deny the, di the diagnosis. Oh, that is so good. I'm so glad you said that. I'm going to write that down. Don't deny the diagnosis, defy the verdict. Yeah, did I say that right? Yep. Bam. Okay, excellent. Now, for me, the next paragraph that begins God is a life giver is a part of this all-time statement. I mean, it just continues to be incredible. Mm -hmm. Why don't you read that for us, Elise? God is the life giver. From the beginning, from the beginning, all his laws were ordained to life. But sin broke in upon the order that God had established mm. and discord followed. So long as sin exists, suffering and death are inevitable. Inevitable. It is only because the Redeemer has borne the curse of sin in our behalf that man can hope to escape in his own person its dire result. Result. Three times. Results, results, results. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I, I look at this and I think to myself, God, again, as the life giver, is uniquely capacitated and qualified, also mm -hmm. having, as he does, the gift of, or the, the, the characteristic of omniscience, he can evaluate how bad sin is. And if God says sin is bad because he's uniquely qualified to ascertain it, we should not deny the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't say, no, no, it's all fine. It's just going to be great. And don't you love that language that, that sin broke in upon God's good world? Yeah. Such great language. It, it broke in upon God's good world. Sin was not a part of God's intent, contra the statement that you read the other night from you know John Piper. Oh, no, it's all a part of God's right, good plan. It's right. all going to be. No, no, it broke into God's good plan. Mm. 
What you got? I, I just think that sentence is so powerful. So long as sin exists, suffering and death are inevitable. Inevitable. Like if we really internalize that, um, it will help us to be able to, um, when we hear all of these ideas coming from our culture that make it sound like, you know, sin doesn't have any consequences. Mm. Um, it will help us to be protected against those kind of ideas. Yeah. And to be able to speak the truth in love to other people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So then Joshua comes up with this really great idea. And and it it's the another, you know, indicator of Joshua's leadership and of his anxiety for his people. Mm-hmm. He's like, I know what we'll do. Let's get everybody back to Shechem. Yep. Right. So they've been, you know, it seems to us like it was ju- this just happened because it was a few chapters ago in the blessings and curses chapter. But remember, there's been years long wars. The the now mostly uh, Canaan has been conquered. The army has been disbanded and people are starting to settle into their allotments. And then Joshua, as the leader, says back to Shechem. Road trip. Road trip. And, and what he does, what's so great about it is he's trying in his you know last days, weeks, months, whatever of life, to tap into that urgency, that energy that they felt when they were just acquiring the land. And again, you know, there's this like this thing that happens like in sports, you know, people are, they're really driven and they're energetic and they want to be the best and they're just trying. And as soon as they sign that big contract, this happens a lot in sports. As soon as they sign that first big contract for a bazillion dollars and they're waking up in satin sheets and they're driving their fancy cars, it's hard to get out of bed and to work as hard as you were before to make it happen because you're, you've kind of arrived. Mm-hmm. And what Joshua is trying to do is he's trying to, you know, rewind the tape a little bit and get them to tap back into that energy and that urgency that they had when they were just on the cusp of coming into Canaan. Yeah. It's a brilliant move. Yeah. It reminded me of, I can't, I don't remember where she says it, but she's saying, um, if you find yourself discouraged or disoriented, uh, in your Christian experience, yeah, go back. look to the place where you last saw the light. Yeah. And as we uh, talked about the other day in the chapters on the blessing, uh, blessings and the curses, Shechem, uh, this, this spot in between the two mountains, was so significant. There's historical significance because all of the things right. that had happened uh, there before with Abraham, Jacob, etc. Um, but it also is this beautiful place, like the aesthetic yep. part is there. And he's calling people back uh, to remind them of this really special message that God wants to help them flourish, but that they need to um, operate according to his principles if, if they want that to be part of their future. Yeah. And it reminds me, I love that, you know, go back to where you've last seen the light. It reminds me of another really great statement from Ellen White that Gabe, when he was here, actually quoted the, we have nothing to fear for the future, yeah. except as we shall forget the Lord's teaching in our past history. Mm-hmm. Right, like, and that's what Joshua does here. He reminds them, "Hey, Abraham, remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the 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 tribes of Israel. We are the." He's trying to make the connection so that he can inspire them to go, "Yeah, yeah, 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 yeah." That's right. Rather than just here again, waking up in satin sheets, they're in their allotment, things are great, but they've compromised. And and she actually says in that next paragraph, and I can scarcely believe this. She says, um, very bottom of page 638, 523, the paragraph that begins by Joshua's direction, the ark. I mean, Joshua's taking it to another level because if you're taking the trouble to bring the ark, mm-hmm. right? Like it's, a, you know, you've got all the priests enlisted and the ark is covered. Like you are sending the message, God is present. God is here because they did this in the original one there mm-hmm. uh, of where Joshua gathered the children of Israel. But you jump down to that last little bit there. 
the worship of idols was still to some extent secretly practiced, and Joshua endeavored now to bring them to a decision that should banish this sin from Israel. And then this is when he goes into that fantastic statement, Joshua 24, you know, 14, 15, 16, mm -hmm. that whole section there. Look, you have to make a decision. If you want to serve the gods on the other side of the river, okay, fine. And then she makes this great point. She said, but this is a this is a stinging rebuke to Israel, reminding them that the gods of the Canaanites could not protect them from Yahweh. Right. So why are you serving? It's it's like it's a little bit like this. Say there's a sports game coming up and and you're gonna watch two teams play and you're a betting person. Okay, I'm not a betting person and hopefully you're not either, but let's just say you were, you're a betting person. This is what it would be like. It would be like trying to place a bet on the losing team after they've lost. Mm -hmm. You say, okay, so I'm going to put my bet on, you know, team A. And then somebody comes up, hey, that game was yesterday and they lost by 30 points. Yeah, but I still want to put my money on them. Mm. You'd say, that's insane. They're the losers. You don't put your money, you don't put your energy, you don't put your faith. In, in the, and Joshua makes this point, right? Like their gods couldn't protect them from our advances, from, from Yahweh was with us. So what are you doing carrying around your little secret icons and idols, right? Mm -hmm. No way. So I, I thought it was great. And then he basically, again and again, you know, choose for yourselves whom you will serve. Ellen White says, Joshua desired to lead them to serve God, not by compulsion, but willingly. And I just think it's, it's, it's beautiful what he's trying to accomplish yeah. here. You, it, the, does this feel like there's a little desperation in this? Right, it really grows out of that right at the beginning, right, where she says that that he had anxiety for his yeah. people. This feels like there's a little desperation here. I love, like, even though he's pulling out all the stops, even though he's anxious, he's still so committed to the people being convinced in their own minds. In their own minds. He, it says he urged the people to consider in all its bearings what he had set before them and to decide if they really desired Correct. to live as did the degraded idolatrous nations around them. And I think that, you know, really reflects God's character because it's so easy as human beings to start employing manipulation or yeah, just telling yeah, people what to you. do. But Joshua knew that God respected these people's freedom. And so he was interacting with them in a way that reflected that. And the use of the word really there is so helpful, isn't it? Right. Like to decide if they really desired to mm -hmm. live as did the degraded idolatrous nations around them. But you know, really is not always the best word to use. You know, editors don't like words like really and very. Right. But but here it does serve a really good, like, like he's inviting them to think this through. Yeah. Right. Remember those nations. Remember the kinds of practices that they were engaged in. Surely remember Baal Peor. Do you, he's in, do you really want to? Mm -hmm. And so, but your point is a point extremely well taken that the invitation is still for them to in their own minds settle this, to decide to make a decision. And of course, they come back with tremendous enthusiasm. Right. Right, they come back and they're like, no, no, we don't want anything to do with those other gods. And probably they're captives to the moment. Sure. Right, like it's a big moment and Mount Ebal's there and Gerizim and the Ark is there and Joshua's dying and there's this, you know, end of the... And so their enthusiasm and their, their sort of emotional energy gets the best of them and Joshua senses, this is, what, this is how I read, the close of Joshua 24, Joshua senses that this is largely an emotional response. And he says, no, 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 it's not like that. You can't just make a sort of emotional response. You have to comply with the conditions. And then they basically say, 
I mean, effectively, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, which is why Ellen White then has this incredible paragraph at the mm. bottom of page 639 that's basically a pushback on the Old Covenant. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, this paragraph here is another all-time paragraph for me. Bottom of page 639, the paragraph begins, you cannot serve the Lord. This is Joshua's response, which again is kind of funny, right? Because, hey, who are you going to serve? Yahweh or the gods on the other side of the river? And they're like, we're going to serve Yahweh. And he's like, well, actually, you can't like this, mm -hmm. right? You can't, you can't half-bake service to Yahweh. You can't somewhat, you can't have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You can't, you know, the, the analogy here again is you can't 90% drive the Canaanites out. You can't 90% serve Yahweh because partial obedience is disobedience. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, you can't have this uh, complicity and this imagined treaty between God and these powers of darkness, right? And then so she said, he says, you cannot serve the Lord, said Joshua, for he is a holy God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins, which of course, Joshua is not saying under any circumstances. He's saying, you have to comply with the conditions of the covenant because, back to what she said earlier, the unconditional, you know, pardon of sin, I'll read it again, the unconditional pardon of sin never has been and never will be. That's what Joshua is saying here. Mm -hmm. That you cannot have your cake and eat it too. You can't have Yahweh and the covenant and his faithfulness and the sanctuary and dwelling in the land and be peacefully coexisting with these idols and these false religions that are steeped in sin and evil. Mm -hmm. Right? You feel me? I'm picking up what you're slapping down. Okay, so then if you could read starting in before, because this is the all-time okay. section. So good. Before there could be any permanent reformation, the people must be led to feel their utter inability in themselves to render obedience to God. Right, that's the pushback on all that the Lord has spoken we will do. Mm. They had broken his law. It condemned them as transgressors, and it provided no way of escape. There you go. While they trusted in their own strength and righteousness, it was impossible for them to secure the pardon of their sins. They could not meet the claims of God's perfect law, and it was in vain that they pledged themselves to serve God. It was only by faith in Christ that they could secure pardon of sin Hallelujah. and receive strength to obey God's law. They must cease to rely upon their own efforts for salvation. They must trust wholly Holy. in the merits of the promised Savior if they would be accepted of God. This paragraph's incredible. Ellen White again and again, when she's pushing righteousness by faith, when she's making a strong righteousness by faith point, she almost, at least in this book so far, she can't avoid saying the word merit. Mm -hmm. She just, she just, she was so steeped in the great truth of sola fide, sola gratia, sola deo gloria, uh, sola Christos. She was so steeped in the solas of the Reformation mm -hmm. that as soon as you're going to talk about right standing with God, she's going to say merits. She mm -hmm. just says it. She just says it reflexively. And if you look at the language that she uses in this paragraph, I mean, she says things like um, their utter inability in their own strength and righteousness. It was impossible. They could not meet the claims. In vain had they pledged them. And then she, she pushes back against all that by saying, it is only by faith in Christ that they could secure pardon and receive strength to obey God's law. And then she says they must trust wholly in the merits of the promised Savior. This is one of the great righteousness by faith paragraphs in this book up to this point. And it is just saturatively righteousness by the faithfulness of Yahweh and by his Messiah. Mm. Bam. So that's what I really like. 
I loved it. I thought it was a, one of the great paragraphs. Mm -hmm. What else you got in the rest of the chapter? Yeah, so I thought, well, then they, after they receive this righteousness by faith lesson from Joshua, they again reiterate their intentions. Mm -hmm. um, and then I thought it was cool that Joshua, like, he recorded it. He, right. It was placed in the ark. This is a very solemn, I mean, special It literally theme. says they made a covenant. Right. And then, then it said, and he set up a pillar as a memorial, mm -hmm. saying, behold, this stone shall be a witness to us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord, which he <laughs> spoke you love to it? us. Yeah, I love that. And I think um, it's important, you know, the children of Israel had so many sensory reminders of God's presence, of the reality of the gospel. Like yeah. they had the sanctuary service, yep, they yep, had yep. they had the feasts, they had all of these um, aesthetic sensory reminders of God's goodness. And even though we don't observe the feasts, um, we don't have a sanctuary system. I mean, we do in heaven. Right. Um, but one of the things this made me think is like, how can we remind ourselves of these things? Like, the, uh, how can we have little um, tangible reminders of God's presence and his goodness? Because we are visual creatures yeah, and beautiful. we're impacted by our environments. And I think nature is meant to be one of those rem reminders. Mm. Um, but sometimes like art or uh, just having music. Music, absolutely. I have I have a little rock collection, so I'm a minimalist, so I don't have a whole lot of things, but I have a rock collection <laughs> with three rocks. Okay. Okay. Do you want to know what three rocks are? These are your are? Ebenezers? Yeah. Okay. So one is from a Waldensian cave where a bunch of Waldensians were martyred. I've been in that cave. Um, One is from the grave of Ellen White and her family. I probably wasn't supposed to take it, but there were a bunch of rocks there. So anyway, <laughs> I did. And another one is from Hungary, where I had a really special experience when I was um, speaking for an event over there. And just holding those rocks in my hands mm. and thinking about what they represent, Beautiful. the people, the stories, God's faithfulness, I can be so encouraged just with a couple of rocks. And I think it's different for everyone, whether it's a song or a rock or yeah. a, like a habit of gratitude journal or whatever it is, but having reminders in our Tactile homes, things, in things. our minds. Yeah, or like communion is a tactile reminder. Um, special Sabbath traditions yeah, sometimes. Mm. I think we need that because we're visual creatures and we need to involve um, involve and engage our senses in our worship. No, that's a, that's a fantastic point. My, one of my very favorite gospel hymns is Come Thou Founts. And in the second you know, verse there, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy... Grace, I've come, right? Help, I've come. Mm -hmm. Hither by the help, I've come, and I hope by some good measure. I, and a lot of people, every time I sing that song, I think, I wonder how many people here are singing this song and have no idea what an Ebenezer is. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, they're, here I raise my Ebenezer, and they just sing, and, and I'm not being critical there. I'm just saying that one of the things that I try to do whenever I'm singing a song is to sing with intentionality. Yeah. To think about, not just to sing it reflexively and almost routinely, but to, to engage with the singing and then to look around and say, hey, I'm singing this song with other people who are singing it with meaning and singing it with feeling. And mm -hmm. religious singing is a very powerful thing. Yeah, love it. It's just such a power. There are, there are things that happen hormonally and in terms of neurotransmitters. When you sing in groups, it does something to you. Yeah. I mean, it's really beautiful and it's religious. I mean, look at what happened to Israel when they came to the other side of the Red Sea. They just instinctively started singing the song of, mm. of triumph that Miriam let out. And we should feel that same 
investment in singing. We never want singing to be religious singing to be a performance mm -hmm. or to be something that's just one of those things that we do. It's this, it's a, it's tactile. And when we have these opportunities to be, to, to be connected in a, in a sort of material way or a substantive way with faith, with reality, we need to protect those things. The Sabbath is another great example. Mm -hmm. We just can't let these things with religious significance, biblical significance become, eh, right. they can't become that. And so there's this, she calls it a solemn transaction. They erect this stone, there's a solemn transaction. And at the close of Joshua 24, Joshua dies and you get this real sense. And, and maybe you didn't pick this up, but this is what I really detected. There was kind of a desperation here. Joshua, he's a man of great wisdom and discernment. He's read the room, he's read the situation, and he said, the only hope these people have, the only hope they have is in Yahweh and in going back to remind themselves of that early primitive faith, because many of them are losing that first love, to mm -hmm. use a New Testament metaphor. Mm -hmm. And so too for us, whether it's a rock that we have from Hungary or Ellen White's grave, or um, what was the first one that you had? Um, the Waldensian. The Waldensian cave. Yeah. You know, we have to have those markers in our lives that we say, no, this... Like, I, I know just, if you just say, David, what day were you baptized? June 6, 1996. Mm -hmm. We just have to remember these things mm -hmm. and do them. Yeah. And remind ourselves of them to keep us connected. Otherwise, oh, we get lazy and we get casual and we deceive ourselves with the plausible theory that it's all going to be okay. Right. Because we don't have a heavenly father. We have a heavenly grandfather and it's all going to be fine. Every, Hershey's kisses for everybody. Right? And God wants something even greater for us than Hershey's Kisses, but it doesn't come cheaply. It comes extremely expensively to God, and then we respond to that incredible, that that incomprehensible cost with faith. Mm. Can I tell you one more thing? That one more out? thing, and then we'll do our rubric. Okay, so um, it, I love how it honored Joshua here in the last paragraph. Joshua's work for Israel was done. He had wholly followed the Lord. Mm. And then it says, the noblest testimony to his character as a public leader is the history of the generation that had enjoyed his labors. And then it, it's quoting from scripture, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. Mm. So what a powerful legacy. He, he was, you know, he and Caleb and I'm sure others were so influential on that generation that there was a long period of obedience to God. And I think sometimes we underestimate the influence we have on other people. Mm. There was some really interesting research um, about the power of social contagion. And it was specifically uh, specifically looking at health habits. It was um, they analyzed the Framington Heart Study, which um, was like one of is this massive study that studied a whole community over many years. And one of the things they found is that our habits um, the habits of our moods, our health habits, not only do they impact our friends, but also our friends' friends and our friends' friends' friends. So mm. there's a three-degree impact. Um, and they they prove that this happens when it comes to um, mood. Like yep. if, if someone is depressed um, or discontent, of course, you know, depression is a thing all of us or many of us deal with at times. But if someone has a habitual pattern of discontentment, that will not only impact the people around them, but it has a ripple effect yeah, all the way out. Gotcha. And the same is true with, you know, positive habits, mm -hmm. negative habits, whatever. And I think uh, oftentimes when we think about our influence, we're just thinking about, yeah, that maybe the people I interact with on a daily basis I'm influencing. But here, 
you see in Joshua's story, and I think the same is true for us, that like we need to think about our choices as if they're rippling out much farther than we may have previously anticipated. Because if we do that, and if we're following God's principles, God can help them to spread out and have a maximum impact on people in a way that that brings healing. Beautiful. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. And when we see like a rock thrown into a pond and we see the ripples going yeah. out, the ripples obviously have a diminishing, but but if God is behind these decisions that we're making, those ripples don't even have to be diminishing. They can actually increase. Mm. Right? Like supernaturally God can cause our influence because really it's not our influence. It's God's influence through us. We don't have to see a diminishing as it goes out 2 3 degrees. God can like all of a sudden, before you know it, there's a Saul that's converted. Mm. You know, like the person that won me to Jesus, my good friend Josh and Mary, um, Josh will often say, you know, I myself have not won hundreds or thousands of souls, but I won David Asherah. Mm-hmm. And God has used David in these ways. Well, what if David then wins five David Asherahs? Or what if Elise wins five Elises, right? Like our ripples can actually increase. Our influence can be far greater and that's at least what's on offer here in the ministry of Joshua. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, if we've read the rest of the story, we know that it's not always going to go that way, but it's a beautiful thing to think that God honors those that honor him. Mm-hmm. Okay, you ready to do the rubric? Yep. Okay. The point, the person, the prayer, the practice, and the promise. What was the point of this chapter, Elise? I put, we need to constantly remind ourselves of God's faithfulness in the past in order to make the best choices in the present that will lead to the best outcomes in the future. Oh, really good. Remind ourselves. Yeah, that's a really good point. I like the idea that so much of what's on offer in this is reflecting back, Mm -hmm. looking back before we look forward. Yeah. What'd you put? I put God calls Israel and us to choose him. That is to say, to choose life itself, Mm. right? Joshua says, choose you this day whom you will serve. And really the invitation is choose life. Choose life. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing that Moses says in the blessings and the curses, right? Like choose life. Um, what do we learn about the person of God? I have since God is love and love always protects. Mm. That's from Paul's writings on love. Love always protects. Yeah. God's principles are protective. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, they they ins- yeah, that's very good. Um, I put God cannot unconditionally excuse sin. That's not a thing that can be done. Mm. And that also that God is the life giver. And as the life giver, as that doctor who's given us the diagnosis, which we don't deny, but the verdict we can defy in Jesus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just love that. I'm going to be quoting that over and over again. Um, the prayer, how do we pray this chapter? God, please remind us and help us to remind ourselves mm-hmm. that you always have our best interest in mind. And I yeah. just want to point out, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yeah, just yeah. God, please remind us, but help us to rem- remind ourselves because sometimes we pray these prayers like, oh God, strengthen my faith. And like, well, God wants to strengthen your faith, but like, that's why we have these stories. Yeah. Like, that's why He's given us minds to recall what He's done in our lives. It's kind of like praying, God, give me big muscles, right? Like, <laughs> like God can help give you big muscles, David, but you have to go to the gym. Like yeah. you were, or you were lifting weights this morning because right. you want your muscles to be bigger, right? So the Not same, bigger, just stronger. Stronger. So the same is true with um, faith, with memory. Like God absolutely wants to answer that prayer, um, but he's given us the materials and resources and awareness to engage with him in the prayer. That's a great point. God, give me big muscles. 
Then he goes sit on the couch and eat Cheetos. <laughs> God, you're not answering my prayers. I'm spending all this time praying. Um, I put, Father, teach me how to love you, to choose you with all my heart, with all my soul and all my strength, right? Mm. Like, how do we do that? And I love your point again and again. We have to have those moments, those reminders mm -hmm. in our lives that we can look to, whether it's a date or a song or a rock or an experience. We have to have those those things that we can look back and say, oh, yeah, that's right. And there and there. And here I am. Yeah. Or a journal of answered prayers. Or yes. even, I mean, like social or media. Journal of an experience. I don't know. Some there kind you of go. a some kind of a religious experience, like a 75-day challenge, like a reading challenge where you get you, together you with your friends. You should really develop this idea. You know, a I'm gonna more. work with this. I, I, um, I just got an idea. So I totally forgot what I was about <laughs> I, to say. I'm sure it was I really important. I think it was important. really important. Um what were you talking about? You don't remember? I hate it when I forget um, a thought. Oh yeah, yeah, social media. So since that's what we're doing, like yeah. that's what a lot of people are doing. You can even use social media in a way that strengthens your own faith. Like mm. take a picture of a beautiful nature scene and reflect on how you saw God's love in that scene. Or when you have an answered prayer uh, that, you know, you could take a picture of like share, share, because that can build your faith. And then when you're scrolling back through your social media, it's not it's just like, you. oh, I went on this vacation and that vacation. But it's like, you know, an Ebenezer, like you said. And it yeah. can also bless the people around around us. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. I'm going to say something here that might get me into trouble with some people. But when I follow people on social media, I have no problem unfollowing certain people. If I don't detect that that their social media is not at some level about their connection with God and their connection with the God of nature and their experience religiously, I'm just kind of not... You're talking about when you're following Well, I'm believers. talking about when I'm following, of course, believers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If I'm following whatever, you know, some rock climbing site, that's different. I'm saying when I'm following believers... I'm actually kind of amazed at how many like good people that I know and and I'll go through their accounts. In fact, just the other day, I was going through this person's account. I was like, is there any evidence that this person is a follower of Jesus in their social media account? And I know they are, but I was like, why do they present this way? Hmm. It was just so strange to me. I'm just like, no, nothing about Jesus, nothing about God, nothing about whatever. It's just all, oh, we traveled and we did all these amazing things. Yeah. Well, how? How are you able to do that? Are you thankful to God? Did God answer any prayers? Do you have the resources to be able to do that? Because God has been good. For me, I don't, I cannot get my mind around a compartmentalized reality where I'm religious at church and I'm religious in certain contexts, mm -hmm. but then in other contexts, there's not even any detectable connection to God. Mm -hmm. I, I can't, I cannot bear that. So I'm really glad to hear you say about the social media, our social media, especially if we have people that follow us that are, you know, like I have a lot of people that follow me either through the rock climbing community or through my family or whatever that are not overtly religious. So not every single thing has to be yeah. God, 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 Jesus, yeah, Jesus, Jesus, be, angels, angels, angels. Right. But there should be some indication. Oh, this person is a follower of Jesus. That's my strong conviction. At least that's how I run my social media. And uh, if you don't run yourself that way, that's fine. That's your business, but you probably won't be followed by me. <laughs> um, Okay, how do we practice this chapter? Um, I just put building habits of remembrance. We've already kind of unpacked what that you're, means. You're really driving at that. Remember, recall, mm -hmm. review. I like that. I put here to enter into the rest, which Jesus, the true Joshua, has provided by his faithfulness, by his life, death, and resurrection. Like God is inviting us to enter into a rest, 
not just the rest of Canaan, not just the rest of the Sabbath weekly, but to enter into the rest of trusting totally to the merits of Jesus, to his faithfulness. Mm. Amen. 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 Promise. Amen. And I love the way you say amen. It's um, so endearing to me. Okay, so my promise What's is your promise? the quote that you uh, that Gabriel also shared a few days back. Oh. We have nothing to fear for the future except as we forget how God has led us in our past. And okay, I'm quoting his teaching in our past history. His teaching in our past history. How oh, beautiful. Mine says, God will at last be victorious over sin, rebellion, and death. The true and eternal promised land will be given to his people. Mm. You got a word? Let's see what everybody else's word is. Um, somebody says here, let's see what we've got here. What was your word for today? Sylvia must have said something really good because people are affirming her. She often says things good. Okay, let's see. Power packed. Oh, my word is choose. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that 75% of people are going to say their word was choose. Oh, Lindbergh says, what was the second all-time paragraph? I'll answer that in just a second. Um, let's see. Witness, remind, choose or choice, choose. Oh, Sylvia goes with servant mm -hmm. because Joshua mm -hmm. uh, was a servant. Beautiful. Eva says, choose. Eva, I love the Permuda Triangle. That's brilliant. Uh, serve. And that's referring to her cats. Her cats. She posted a picture of her cats. Choose. Fulfilled in Jesus. That's a great one. Choose. Follow reiteration. Oh yeah, very good. So they go back to Shechem. Continue. Commitment. Parent. Oh, because of the fatherly love and care. Oh, okay. People like my song that I posted yesterday in the snow. Fulfill. Fulfilled. Choose. How could I not choose? Choose. Very good, Hannah. I agree. Choose. Sincerity. Mm -hmm. Principles. Oh, holy. Yeah, that word comes up at least twice this chapter, and it's really used in very important places. Coach Warrenell says he would appreciate prayer. Okay, we'll pray for you right at the mm -hmm. end here. <laughs> Eva says she can't take permission for Bermuda Triangle. Today, oh yeah, because today, if you will, yeah, that's good. Choose this day whom you will serve. Life. So my word was choose for obvious reasons. Choose, choose, choice, decide. A lot of synonyms for choose. What was mm -hmm. your word? Remember. I knew it was going to be something like remember, mm -hmm. recall, review, remember. Great word. Now, somebody asked what the second all-time paragraph was. So the first one was, um, uh, I don't know if you have types and symbols. So the first one is on page 637 of types and symbols, begins, uh, or 522 of the original, begins with Satan deceives many with the plausible theory. And it's not just that paragraph, but it's the, it's the second paragraph too. So that's, I call that one those two paragraphs together. And then the other one was over, remember, we walked through it, that really great righteousness by faith. This is on 639, uh, 524 of the original. The paragraph begins, you cannot serve the Lord. But the really all time section is, before there could be any permanent reformation, the people must be led to feel their utter inability in themselves to render obedience to God. They had broken his law. So that's on 639 and 640. Um, and this is the first chapter so far to have two all time statements. So, Elise, thank you for coming. Yeah. Did you enjoy your fun. time? I did. I did. Even though it was cold and a little snowy. There was sushi. There was, there there was, was good snow. food. There was OT with DA. OT with DA. There was DA. There was VA and yep. JA. JA. 
And what's next? What happens to you next? Where are you going? I am flying to Michigan. Back home. And trying to catch up on school and work. Because you're taking two master's degrees. Yes. Good for you. Did you fall behind in your schooling here? Um, a little bit. I'll catch up. You'll catch up. Yeah, You'll be right. it was worth it. Um, Elise, people absolutely, people, look at how many people are giving you hearts and come back again, Elise. People love you. And get that book written, Elise. Yeah, I know you're I'm, not doing I'm, anything else. You, you have almost no other projects. Well, it, the sad thing is it's like 75% done and it's been sitting for a whole year. But you want to get this master's degree so that people will, quote, take you seriously. Something like that. Okay. Um, we love you guys so much. We'll be back tomorrow with, well, I didn't say the name yet. But anyway, we have a special guest tomorrow. Special surprise. He was with us several times uh, in OT with the, uh, DA with oh, DA. So much love here. Look at all those hearts. Uh, thank you, guys. Um, love you, Elise, too. I'm going to have you close prayer. And okay. Coach Warren L. ask if we would pray for him. I don't know okay. exactly what it is, but he would like prayer. And if you could remember Barb and Mike, that would be great, yep. too. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the chance to be together. Um, thank you for the OT with the A community. Thank Amen. you for fellow believers who love you and love one another. Mm -hmm. um, help us to be able to stay connected. And we lift up these requests to you, knowing that you care about them even more than we do. We pray Amen. for Barb and Mike, mm -hmm. uh, for Barb's health. We pray for Amen. Coach Warrenell and his request. And I know there's many, many requests here um, because there's many people. I pray that you would give a special, special blessing to each person who is part of this reading challenge um, and that you would send them what you know they need the most. Mm -hmm. And we lift up the people in the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, Amen. the people there, the many, many people around mm -hmm. the world that are impacted by it. We pray that you will bring comfort to the grief and that you will bring help and tangible resources. We pray you would show us how we can be a part of that. Mm -hmm. And um, I pray a blessing for David and his family, that you would bless them for what they're doing. And um, thank you for the hope that we have in you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you all. We'll see you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock. Elise will not be with us, but we will have a guest. And you'll just have to tune in to see who the mystery guest is. Have a great day. We love you so much.